You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. And the implications for nickel are very clear. You know, of the 10 largest nickel producing countries in the world, only two are are free trade allies with the United States. That is Canada and Australia. And so we believe that the IRA has placed a significant additional premium on the strategic importance of, you know, battery raw material projects in Canada and Australia. And it's something that that I think that the, the market hasn't really sort of read through and understood yet or else. I think the valuations of those companies would would be significantly higher than what they are today. Our ability with this refinery that this could be the largest nickel sulfate refinery in the world, producing in excess of 43,000 tons of nickel in the form of nickel sulfate per annum. And that would represent close to 20% of the nickel sulfate requirements for the North American EV industry by the year 2030. So this is sizable. It's a major milestone for us to demonstrate that. Thanks for tuning into Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers, and joining me today to talk about the nickel markets as well as how the company is progressing is FPX Nickel President, CEO, and Director Martin Turen. FPX is a multi year sponsor, and this is a company that I have high hopes for in their development process. Development companies, uh, it takes many years to see the full value um, brought forth, but Martin's been with the company for quite some time. And the company has made progress on an internal scoping study, which they've uh, made the results of public. But Martin, before we talk about that, uh, here in the States, um, your project is integrally linked to what's going on in the States as you would be a North American supplier of nickel. We approved here in Congress and the president signed it, the Inflation Reduction Act. So from your vantage point as a CEO of a nickel development company, how does this uh, legislation impact what you're doing? Yeah, thanks for having us on again, Bill. And, you know, I'd say that the that, that act or the IRA, as it's being called, is, is a big deal for the mining industry in, in the United States and Canada and in uh, free trade allies of, of the U.S., you know, one of the aspects of that bill that is uh, of particular interest to us is the uh, the regime for the uh, uh, tax credit or the subsidies for the purchase of electric vehicles in the United States. That's a subsidy that amounts to up to $7,500, uh, which is obviously a fairly large number and something that, that all automakers are going to want to leverage and, and, uh, and have their vehicles be eligible for. What's really important, though, is that the eligibility requirements around that credit or that subsidy are very strict and they're premised on sourcing of materials from the United States or from free trade ally countries like Canada. Um, so by 2027, 80% of the material, a minimum of 80% of the raw material that goes into making the car, including the battery components, will have to come from the US or from free trade countries. Um, that's a pretty high bar to meet. Um, also, I think of interest is that if there's any material in the batteries that comes from China or Russia, uh, the vehicle will not be eligible for the subsidy. So what this is really trying to do is trying to develop not just the domestic supply chain for battery raw materials, but also that supply chain from those free trade ally countries. Um, and the implications for nickel are very clear. You know, uh, of the 10 largest nickel producing countries in the world, only two are, are free trade allies with the United States, that is Canada and Australia. And so we believe that the IRA has placed a significant additional premium on the strategic importance of, 
you know, battery raw material projects in Canada and Australia. And it's something that, that I think that the, the market hasn't really sort of read through and understood yet, or else I think the valuations of those companies would, would be significantly higher than what they are today. Martin, when politicians uh, make laws like this, they often don't see it all the way through from my perspective because they serve two or four year terms. So when they're they're demanding that the nickel be sourced from Canada or uh, these ally nations, is there even enough nickel to be sourced to meet the EV demand that they want to generate? No, there there probably isn't. And I think your point about (laughs) politicians being short sighted is is a is a very valid one. Uh, Frankly, We've, we've been saying for years that the critical bottleneck for the transition to EVs is the availability of these raw materials to now put this additional constraint on, you know, sourcing those raw materials only from friendly countries. You know, um, frankly, I don't think that we can get there. Um, and uh, so I think what we'll likely see in our, in our discussions with car makers and other participants in the battery raw materials supply chain you will likely have to see some degree of relaxing or some waivers granted for the eligibility uh, with respect to this subsidy. But I think the North Star vision here is is clear. Uh, And it's one I think that that generally has bilateral support uh, in in the US federal government, which is what what we need to be friendshoring and onshoring um, these these critical supply chains and that we can't rely on countries that we have like China and Russia to the same extent that we have in the past. And so I think there's going to be some messiness in implementing this in the short term, but I think that long-term vision is clear. And again, I think it does, it does bode well for the, for the North American mining industry. So you're developing the Baptiste nickel deposit in British Columbia in five years, you couldn't even have this online. Could you like if everything went uh, progressed smoothly and you said you're looking for a buyer, so someone else is going to eventually bring this into production, but what's the best case scenario for your deposit to even come into production? Yeah, I think a realistic best case scenario is the deposit coming into production in 2029 or 2030. Um, you know, there's been talk both in in the United States and in Canada recently about wanting to accelerate uh, or or streamline the permitting process to move these these projects forward. Uh, even news today on that front in the United States, where some of the automakers are are starting to throw their lobbying weight behind that. Um, I think that's easier said than done. We'd certainly love to see it. But, you know, there's important engagement that needs to be done with local communities for all of these projects. And, and that engagement can be, you know, ex- needs to be extensive and it is sort of time consuming. I think the biggest thing that we can hope for is that those local communities, oftentimes they're under-resourced in their ability to evaluate these projects. And so if you don't have the resources to evaluate a project happening in your backyard, it's hard for you to want to, let's say, give it a thumbs up. So what, what we would look for is more support from the governments to provide those local communities with the capacity they require to properly evaluate these projects and really work collaboratively with mine development uh, companies um, in a collaborative approach. Because I think that's what would serve both the companies and the communities best. So you released a scoping study. So could this also be called like a pre-visibility? Sorry, a pre-preliminary economic assessment? Yeah. So yeah, we, we've we've put out the re- the results of a of a scoping study looking at our ability to produce uh, nickel sulfate. So if we just back up for a second, we've completed a, a preliminary economic assessment on the mine on the main mine to mill process to produce a very high grade nickel concentrate. Uh, that study was completed in 2020. This new uh, internal scoping study 
looks at what the implications of bolting on an additional uh, refinery facility would look like and uh, in, in taking that concentrate that we produce from the main mine to mill uh, operation and upgrading it to a battery grade uh, nickel chemical in the form of nickel sulfate. And so those, those results are quite positive, maybe something we can get further into here in the discussion. But what it, what it demonstrates at a high level is our ability with this refinery that this could be the largest nickel sulfate refinery in the world, producing in excess of 43,000 tons of nickel in the form of nickel sulfate per annum. And that would represent close to 20% of the nickel sulfate requirements for the uh, North American uh, EV industry by the year 2030. So this is sizable. It's a major milestone for us to demonstrate that. And in the next stage of technical study of formal 43-101 study, we will incorporate the results of this uh, hydromet work in, in, that, uh, in that next stage of study next year. And you're still at the stage of giving yourself some various options as you're kind of working through the best scenario here too, the press release stated. That's right. So, I mean, this is looking at producing uh, nickel sulfate, which is a critical chemical that goes into the cathode of the batteries. That could be done either at our project site here in British Columbia, or potentially we could ship the concentrate to uh, a facility that would be co-located with the chemical and the battery plants. So this theme of co-location, which means basically building industrial parks where multiple parts of the supply chain are located sort of next door to each other, uh, is a key theme. So what we see emerging here, and we've already seen announcements around this, is these, these industrial parks are being built in places like Ontario and Quebec and Canada and in various pockets throughout the United States. And that's where you're taking you know, raw material concentrate feeds from a variety of producers uh, across the continent. You're refining them in a single site. And in that single site, you're also then converting them to the battery chemical and then further putting them into the battery and even having the car plants located next to them as well. So these giant industrial sites are kind of in the early stages of, of development. And so we have optionality to produce that battery grade nickel product either at our project or to do it in collaboration with others at those uh, combined industrial sites. So what you're studying is a lot different than a, a gold company that just has a heap leach project in Nevada. You know, you have to deal with chemical companies, battery companies, the automotive companies. Are you in discussion with, uh, you know, all the downstream participants that are going to use your product? Yeah, it, it's, it, it'd be hard for me to overstate just how exciting a, a, a moment we're at right now for the mining industry, particularly within the, the, the scope of critical raw materials, things like lithium and nickel and cobalt and graphite. Where companies like ours, yes, we've been, you know, very much engaged with discussions, in discussions rather, with automotive OEMs, with the battery makers, and with the chemical companies uh, for well over the last year. And those groups are, as a matter of existential requirement, needing these raw materials. And so that's why they're talking not just to the major, you know, incumbent nickel producers, you know, groups like Vale and BHP and Glencore but also going all the way down uh, the food chain, so to speak, to the earlier stage projects like ours, uh, because they need to think about the raw material requirements they have for this decade and for decades to come when, um, you know, as I've said in the past, the way that these companies and particularly the automakers will, rin, will rin, win the race rather to uh, being successful in the EV space, it really hinges on two things. One is their kind of software within the vehicles. 
And secondly, is going to be the access to raw materials. Without raw materials, automakers won't be able to survive through this transition. And you you could see a, a wholly different sort of auto industry in the next 10 to 15 years where you could see you know, large-scale automotive companies not exist anymore simply because they weren't able to secure the raw materials to build their vehicles. So is there going to be a fusion of auto companies and mining companies? Or how? Like, do you have any insight on how you see that playing out? Yeah, I mean, I think there are insights that can be gleaned in the public domain. I mean, the, the VW uh, CEO was in Canada, I believe, uh, a week or two ago and made a very public pronouncement that they want to invest in Canadian mines and Canadian mining companies. So that's as explicit a, a kind of a signal the, that the automotive industry will get financially involved in the in the auto space. You know, there's also been examples over the last couple of years, and particularly in the last few months, of automakers making direct investment and becoming equity owners in, for example, lithium companies. ASX listed lithium companies have seen direct investment, where some of the largest automakers in the world are now shareholders of those of those uh, of those lithium juniors. These are, these are companies that might have had a market cap of 30 or 40 million a few years ago that saw their market cap increase with the lithium price run and now can count as having automakers as, as, their, um, as their shareholders. And in our private conversations with those types of groups, we see that that is definitely the way forward uh, when we talk about you know, the potential for doing you know, offtake arrangements where they would potentially become shareholders in our company to help us advance the project. They're not batting an eyelash at that. They're 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 they are they are of the view as we are that in order for those companies to secure raw materials, they're going to have to crack open the checkbook and and make investments upstream into the mining industry. And so that is a clear theme that would encourage you know all investors to look at that is going to play out here over the next several years. Uh, I'm absolutely certain of that. So then let's talk about your market cap current FPX's market cap relative to what you have. And relative to what you'd be willing to sell it to a buyer or a potential JV partner, can you kind of share with us your executive philosophy on that? Yeah. Um, so our current market capitalization is only around 100 million Canadian. Um, you know, the last stage of study of the PEA that we put out in 2020 implied a project value on an after-tax basis using an eight percent discount rate, so an NPV of over two billion Canadian. So we trade at a multiple of about 0.05. So that is our market cap represents about 5% of our implied project value in our study. What you tend to see in our space and Martin, right you now... You said 0. 0.05, not 0. 0.5, just so people caught that. <laughs> that. That's correct. And so transaction values when companies like ours tend to get taken out um, as they continue to advance their projects can easily exceed 0. 0.5 of the NAV. Uh, so that would be a sort of a multiple of 10 from where we are today. Uh, what you tend to see is as, co as companies advance and de-risk their projects, they trade at a higher and higher multiple. Um, we we are still at a very low multiple, which speaks, I think, you know, uh, we've been at a higher multiple in recent in recent months here, but it's been a difficult year, as we all know, for the junior mining space. In terms of any kind of bright lines, we don't we don't kind of operate with bright lines in terms of valuation, but we are you know, very steadfast in the view that if we were to JV or certainly sell the project. It would have to be at a very significant multiple to today's valuation. Not only do you have nickel, but the press release mentioned you have cobalt and you can actually become one of the top five cobalt producers in Canada as well. If you could elaborate on that, please. Yeah. So, you know, cobalt is strictly sort of a byproduct production in Canada and it typically comes from the operations 
of Glencore and Valle in central and eastern Canada. And so, yeah, on that scale, uh, the Hydromet scoping study that, that uh, you mentioned there shows that we would be in that group of the five largest producing something in the region of seven to 800 tons of cobalt per annum. Not a huge amount that represents, you know, about half a percent of total global cobalt supply right now. But again, critically, it's cobalt that would come from North America. And ultimately, we think that it, that, that uh, sourcing of products on the basis of sort of the, where it comes from regionally and also the carbon footprint associated with, with it could potentially yield a very significant premium over the global price. That is that, you know, end consumers will be able to pay or willing to pay uh, and in some cases need to pay a premium to get um, uh, nickel and cobalt that's sourced from friendly countries and that has a low carbon profile. Martin, uh, spin-out companies uh, can produce more value for shareholders. So you're doing a spin-out carbon capture company. And we saw Great Bear Resources did a great job monetizing the deposit that they had, as well as their royalty company. That's like a prime example of success for shareholders winning all around. What's your philosophy and your rationale for doing a spin-out company at this point with FPX? Yeah, so earlier this year, we announced the formation of CO2 Lock Corp, which, as you say, is a, is a new subsidiary, kind of a spin-out of, of, of our company. Shareholders of FPX now have an implied ownership interest in CO2 Lock. It hasn't been formally spun out to shareholders as of yet. CO2 Lock is really focused on uh, sequestration of carbon dioxide in the same types of geological settings that we have at, at our FPX uh, Baptiste project. Um, <clears throat> our work on that project over the last several years, including with the University of British Columbia, has shown that the host rocks here can sequester a large amount of CO2, um, and so that these, these, these mineral settings can act as huge carbon sinks. And so while that's something that we've incorporated within the development plan for Baptiste, we see an opportunity with this new subsidiary to go out and for that subsidiary to stake its own ground that is prospective for these teams, same types of mineral settings and to explore various ways in which a lot of carbon could be sequestered at low cost. Um, we think that that more rightly sits in a separate vehicle. It's not on the main line or the main course of project development at FPX, but it does represent sort of significant potential upside for FPX shareholders. It leverages the work that we've done in that space. We've now hired a new uh, management team uh, to run CO2 Lock, a very capable group that's going to push that concept forward. And as we've seen here in the capital markets over the last year or so, um, there the, the market, I think, will be prone to having bubbles in the price of, of CO2 and the price of the CO2 credits. And that is something that uh, we think is only going to kind of continue to recur here in the future. We're at a bit of a low moment right now in, in the carbon markets. But I think as, as, the, as the, the world continues to move towards trying to mitigate carbon emissions, Having a technology-focused company like CO2 Lock that is focused on large-scale, low-cost carbon sequestration opportunities is something that could potentially unearth a lot of value for FPX shareholders. And it's not something that FPX shareholders have had to pay for. A CO2 Lock has gone out and raised its own money and will continue to do so, to, to do so in the years to come. And FPX shareholders will just have a free ride along to see how that, that uh, initiative goes. And do you have a rec uh, record date, date of record in mind for when the spinout will become official? Uh, we, we do not really uh, at this point. CO2 lock is FPX owns about 80% of CO2 lock and the remaining 20% is owned by third party shareholders who have invested into CO2 lock directly. Um, 
And so in terms of the corporate strategy for how we would deal with CO2 lock, any kind of record date or any kind of go public date uh, on its own for CO2 lock, frankly, is still, you know, in, in all likelihood years away. The van target. We talked about this last year on the show and we talked about it before you started drilling. You confirmed um, a discovery there. Now you're doing a step out hole. This is a discovery that wasn't valued as such by the market, which we see a lot in the Canadian junior markets right now. But now you're doing a step out hole on your discovery of last year. How is that progressing? That's progressing very well. That that step out drill program, uh, which included some aggressive step outs up to about you know over a kilometer away from where we drilled last year, uh, has gone very well. It's nearing its conclusion as we speak, and it will represent something in the region of another ten holes and something in the region of another three thousand meters. Um, this is wide spaced, you know, aggressive uh, step outs from where what the discovery we made last year. You know, the hypothesis with Van has always been that it could host a deposit that is either larger and or higher grade than what we have at Baptiste. That hypothesis was still very much confirmed and preserved in the initial drilling last year. And, you know, uh, without getting into any details, so far so good through this year's program. And we're pretty excited to to release the first set of assay results at some point, you know, in the October or November timeframe, you know, depending on lab turnaround times. Do the majors, um, if you're allowed to say, when they're talking to you about your company, do they ask about Van or is it strictly Baptiste that they're interested in? No, there's quite a bit of focus on Van as well. Um, you know, the majors, when they do evaluations of these types of projects, as you know, they have multiple sort of groups within their company, technical, you know, disciplines within their company that are involved in these due diligence processes. So everything from sort of mine engineering to metallurgy to geotechnical and tailings considerations, environmental considerations and the like. But a big part of it is obviously the sort of the geological team. And, you know, um, our view that Descartes uh, is really a district that will host multiple large scale nickel deposits is something that has been very much confirmed in our reviews with those third parties. They, they definitely view it as a district. Um, I think to the extent that we can continue to unlock the real economic and technical potential of Baptiste, the main deposit, that is the sort of the key then to unlocking the economic viability of all the other nickel that we're that we know that we're delineating with Van and that we could potentially delineate with other large scale targets at the project. So the next catalyst then will obviously be the Van drill results. Um, anything else we should expect out, out of Baptiste in the near near term? Yeah, we're continuing to advance Baptiste to the next ultimate milestone, which is a new technical report, likely to be a uh, preliminary feasibility study by the mid part of 2023. So a lot of work programs and and in particular, a big focus on metallurgical work. So we are in the midst and nearing the end now of a very comprehensive three-phase metallurgical test program that is really of the type and scale that you would normally see companies do at a feasibility level. We're doing it right now. Uh, that's involving, in total, the processing of over 25 tons of material, so very extensive samples taken from all phases of the mine life. We released the results of phase one of that network in December last year. Phase two results were put out just recently in July, and phase three results are going to be out in October. To date, all the, the results that we've put out into the market have been very confirmatory of the recovery assumptions that underpin the 2020 PEA. So that's been a huge success for us to go from the bench scale to now doing pilot uh, pilot plant scale demonstration of the flow sheet. 
is a critical de-risking milestone. Again, we have had the bad luck, I think, of, of putting out those news releases on phase one in December of last year in the midst of tax law selling in July of this year through the difficulty that we've seen in the market. They've, both of those re- releases were met with a bit of a yawn by the market. But for those sort of more technically inclined, really looking at what the takeaways are there, they're incredibly you know, um, important de-risking milestones for the project and something I would encourage people to look at in more detail as we continue to really credibly advance this uh, project towards, um, towards through studies and towards an eventual uh, construction decision in the years to come. And where does our treasury and burn rate sit? Sure. So the tre- current treasury is around $8.5 million Canadian. So we're sort of fully funded well into 2023. Uh, burn rate would take us out until kind of the mid part of next year. So we're sort of well capitalized right now. Um, but as with any junior company, you know, you can expect that companies like ours typically need to raise every 12 to 18 months. Our last raise was was last year. And so, you know, the potential for a raise over the next six months is obviously very high. And you've never raised with warrants, though, I can point out, right? You just have some incentive options for people on your team, but there's no warrants as an overhang on the stock. That's right. There's a, there's a, just over a million broker warrants that were done as a result of a bought deal last year. But in terms of warrants to the actual investors in those placements or in those bought deals, no. You know, Since I've been running the company, which is now seven years, even through the depths of the very difficult bear market in you know, 2015, 16, 17, we never did any warrants in any of our financings. And you know, we hope that that's something that gives a signal to people that um, they can buy uh, this stock in the market and not feel as if they're going to be sort of, um, you know, punished, let's say, with a heavily dilutive fi- financing that comes with, you know, uh, long, splashy warrants that they don't have access to. So certainly we hope that that's something that gives retail investors greater confidence to go out in the market and, and buy the stock. Well, the company's website is fpxnickel.com, trades in Toronto under FPX, and in the States under FPOCF. Martin, thanks for coming on the show and providing this update. Thanks, Bill. Good. Great to see you again. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.